This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as always, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And if you were with us last week, you know that we have started our short uh, series of messages here on the book of Jonah and the story of the prophet Jonah and the city of Nineveh. And as we left last week, Sam, Jonah had just been swallowed by the big fish, the giant sea creature, something had come up from down there (laughs) and grabbed up Jonah and took it with him. And so as we begin this week, we find Jonah in the belly of the fish. And so Jonah does what I think any of us would do, Sam, when he's in the belly of the fish, he prays. Yeah, which is the first time for Jonah and this whole story. Isn't it? You kept remarking that last week. Everybody else is calling out to the name of the Lord except Jonah. Except Jonah, the prophet, the yeah. man of God. Yeah. Uh, and so just to kind of review where we've come through last week, Jonah is a prophet. He's a prophet to the northern tribes of Israel. And God calls on him to go and to preach a message of repentance, you know, to call out their wickedness to the Assyrians, who at this time are the most wicked empire that has ever emerged on the face of the world. You said it was the Um, first terroristic empire. Absolutely. Um, They they did things that were just notoriously cruel, and they were the biggest geopolitical threat to Israel at this time. Assyria is swallowing up other kingdoms around them. And so it looks like Israel is next, you know, within decades, you know, they're they're likely to fall. And by the way, they eventually do. Right. And so God goes to Jonah and says, go and preach to them. And Jonah just absolutely refuses, gets on a boat, goes in the opposite direction. God sends a storm. Jonah's sleeping in the boat, just kind of deaf to God, can't hear anything, angry at God. And uh, the mariners, these Gentile mariners, are all like, why are you sleeping? You know, they call out to their gods. Nothing's working. They wake Jonah up, and he says, it's my fault. If you want the storm to cease, throw me into the sea, Um, which then shows you Jonah's heart is hard because he doesn't want to turn around and obey, and he doesn't want to call out to his god. Um, so they throw him into the waters. And not, not before trying first to handle it themselves, though. Remember, yeah, they tried yeah. to row. They tried to do it themselves, and then finally in the water. Right. And so they throw the man of God into the waters, and God had appointed – I love that word – the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And so, like, God has this all ready to go. Like, all the players are there. There's the fish in place ready for this. He's, it's like he brings the storm. He's got all the circumstances. You can just see his sovereignty over all of this. And what's interesting is God is orchestrating all of nature, all the circumstances, because God is chasing after his prophet. He wants to win the heart of his prophet. And he's going to save, bring to salvation all of these mariners that are on the boat that get to see, you know, his sovereignty and power yeah. over nature. Mm-hmm. I mean, he does all kinds of good stuff chasing after this one man whose heart is angry with God. Mm-hmm even as God was using something as violent as that storm Mm -hmm. to deal with his prophet who was fleeing from him, he brought salvation to those Gentile sailors. I mean, it says that when they hurled him into the sea and the storm stopped, that they feared the Lord exceedingly and then made sacrifices and made vows. It's like they, you know, Mm -hmm. salvation came to that boat that day uh, because of what happened to Jonah. Yeah, and there's so many different threads in this story, you know, and God, you just see here, God is sovereign over every one of them, from the storm to the sailors. I mean, you think about what circumstances brought each of these sailors onto that boat. You know, none of them are accidental. God is sovereign over all of them. He's sovereign over the where the fish is, where the storm is, what Joan is doing. I mean, it's 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 pretty incredible. God is orchestrating this to do something really wonderful. Yeah, and you know, we were talking about that before we turned the mics on. Just it, sort of in terms of like we see a lot of 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 the big picture of Jonah in terms of our own society as the church in the world and the church in America, and how it seems as though you know we suffer 
uh, setbacks and reversals and persecution at different times, or uh, especially the the church worldwide. I mean, the things that happen to uh, Christians in some other countries are just way worse than what's going on here in America, where you know we're losing maybe power and standing, you know, socially and and politically, but they're losing their lives, you know, mm-hmm. in some of these other countries. And that how difficult it is sometimes to believe or to, to or to find comfort in the idea that God is sovereign over these things, so that we 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 follow Him and and do the thing do things the best we can, the best we understand, but we accept that He's sovereign over the outcome, and mm-hmm. that that's a it's a theological truth that sometimes becomes a difficult thing to to experience emotionally maybe is that the right way to put it but it's just hard to find mm-hmm. there's times i'm like god i know you're good i know that you're in control but lord this really hurts yeah yeah you know and the interesting thing about jonah is he's a believer in god's sovereignty so god tells jonah i want you to go to the assyrians and nineveh and preach to them and we find out as the book goes on jonah's not afraid of losing his lo- his own life like he's not afraid that he's going to go to Nineveh and every one of us would think oh, they're going to kill him. You know, yeah. who's who is this guy? Yeah. They don't kill him and Jonah's greater fear was not that he would die, but that God would show grace to these people that Jonah despised. Yeah. You know, it's like Jonah is afraid of God's sovereignty because he knows God's sovereignty tends toward mercy. Yeah. And you know that's interesting because if I'm looking if I'm looking in that for a message to the contemporary church today, I, you know I'm saying look, the, Jonah clearly thought that the mercy of God and the, and was for God's people, meaning the Hebrews, the Israelites, and God was showing Jonah that no, no, it's not. My mercy is for all people. My mercy is for even the people that you hate. My mercy is for them as well. And so you need to go take the message to them. And and there's a message to the church worldwide, the church in America, which is even, you know, y- you look at sometimes the people that are, are, are oppressing you or who, who seem to be your bitter enemies, and we have to acknowledge that God's mercy is for them as well, and we have mm-hmm. to take the message to them as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that God is requiring of Jonah, you know, God gives them a message and says, go speak out against them. You know, I'm going to overthrow these wicked people. And so, you know, that's absolutely God's right to bring about justice on wicked cultures or wicked people. That would be, that's absolutely in God's wheelhouse, and he's the only one who can do that, where Jonah has no right to require vengeance. He has, you know, he he's not in a standing where he can bring judgment because Jonah, like the Assyrians, is a rotten sinner, just like us. Sure. And so, you know, I there's people who are my <laughs> my Ninevites in my life that drive me crazy. That we, I, we all have them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all of us do. My role in in this world as a child of God is to extend mercy and kindness and leave the judgment and wrath to the Lord. He says, "Vengeance is mine," um, and He does allow the state to bring justice but as an individual it's not mine i can't bring justice and vengeance i'm not allowed to and and let's be clear here we're not saying that that means that our message has to be everything you're doing is fine it's good for no. you to do things your way and we'll do things our way and they're all equal outcomes and everything else we can we can preach the truth mm-hmm. to say God tells Jonah if, to. yeah if you, the, the direction that you are heading is a direction that leads to destruction ultimately and you know it may feel good right now it may seem like a good idea right now but this is not going to end well for you and you need to turn <laughs> to the Lord and repent um, and so the message we don't we're not advocating a watering down of the truth of the message but we are saying that God's mercy is not just for us that God's mercy is for all people um, for, for anyone whom he may call to be his people. Yeah. So um, anyway, so Jonah is in the belly of the fish, and he begins to pray. Is there anything about the prayer that stands out to you? Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, the, the this prayer shows you that he genuinely is a man of God. He knows Scripture. He, he understands mercy. He understands grace as it relates to him. He quotes the Psalms, right? Uh, he quotes the Psalms multiple times in this prayer. So this is this is somebody, the, the, the Scriptures are on his lips. He understands the way that God works. I mean, this is a really, really beautiful prayer. And if it ended, you know, at, at chapter 2, you would think, oh my goodness, this guy is a stunning picture of of the gospel. 
and and this is wonderful. Everyone be like Jonah, <laughs> you know. But then you find out that even though he understands and receives and basks in God's mercy when it's directed toward him, he's got the vertical, right? He's got the vertical. So between me and God, we're good. Right. But he has a very, very hard time taking that vertical and moving it to the horizontal to where he's loving his neighbors that God is calling him to love. You know, one of the things I've noticed here, and, and maybe this is the Lautenschläger theology, maybe I'll need to get corrected on this, but the it starts off in the past tense. He says, I called, past tense, out mm-hmm. to the Lord, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So I've always taken that to mean that Jonah wasn't asking God to save him from the fish, that Jonah was thanking God for saving him with the fish, by the fish. Like, hmm. Jonah was thrown into the water. Because it goes on it, it goes on further. It says, verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the root of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars mm-hmm. had closed. So in other words, I think that, Jane, that when Jonah hit the water, that that's when he called out to God, and he said, save me. And he saw the fish as being God's, you know, biological submarine that came and and saved him from drowning. Um, So I've always thought it was interesting because, you know, some people have said the first thing that, you know, Jonah must have been wanting to be saved from the fish. I think he was, I think he saw the fish as being salvation. Like God was saving him from drowning by sending the fish. Well, when when he's calling out in the past tense in this, in verse one, when he says, I called out to the Lord, he's quoting Psalm three, verse four. And I think that's part of the reason why it's in past tense. So when we enter into Jonah's prayer, which is almost all of chapter two, it comes right at the end of chapter one. And remember, it, there's no there's no chapter breaks in the original. Yes, that's and true. so the last <laughs> the last sentence that we have of chapter one is Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. So in any case, what the scriptures are inviting us to see is this is at the end of these three days. Jonah cries out. It's like, you know, so what he's doing for these other part of the three days, you know, is he sulking? Is he seeking the Lord? Is he meditating? Is he, you know, but you get the idea that at the end of these three days, now he's crying out. And I think there's some element to where he's he's grateful that God has sent the fish because otherwise it was certain death. Right. But he refers to um, – when he calls out, he, he says, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. So the, I remember how we talked last week about how every, every time Jonah's situation changed, he's going down, down, That's true. down, down. Yeah. And so when he says, out of the belly of Sheol, well, Sheol is, is a Hebrew word that it just means grave. So he's comparing the waters to death, which, as we've talked be. about in many, many other episodes, the sea or deep waters is always emblematic of death. And so Jonah gets the fact that now I'm in this fish, and the fish has now gone down, 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 and I'm in the grave. Like, this is death for me, and mm-hmm. I've cried out, and you heard my voice. Mm-hmm. Um and it's interesting, like, as Jonah's going through this prayer, he attributes every bit of his circumstance to the Lord. Like, he he, he is not a believer in chance or, uh, you know, he says, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Well, God didn't. The mariners did. But Jonah totally sees all of this right. as coming straight from the hand of God. And he's quoting the Psalms when he says, all your waves and your billows pass over me. It's it's a picture of death. Right. Um and so really this entire prayer is a is a prayer of a resurrection from judgment and death. Um one of the other, you know, let me just this rabbit trails you hear about, you know, if you if you spend enough time on this interwebs thing, you see people with different <laughs> theories. <laughs> um do you think Jonah actually like died and was raised like was this or do you think that he I've always believed he was preserved in the belly yeah. of the fish. I don't think he died. Okay, but I've heard people say that that you know, belly of Sheol and then when it says you brought my life up from the pit in yeah. verse 6, I've always taken that to be you know that he's basically he's talking metaphorically he's not he didn't actually go to sheol yeah no i don't think he does and and verse seven it says when my life was fainting away right and so like that that word is literally it's to become weak in the hebrew right um and so like my it's like he's right at the end where his life is just about to let go and then so it's like at the end of these three days just about to let go, I remembered the Lord. 
So it's like, bam, and that infuses him. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. And, and at that moment, Jonah has this radical transformation. And he says, and this is going to show you the hypocrisy of Jonah. So that next line in verse 8, he says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And Jonah realizes at this moment, that's him. He has so loved his idols that he has walked right past every bit of God's promise of salvation to him. He's ignored God. He's pushed him away because his idol, well, what's his idol? Well, for Jonah, it's nationalism and Israel, and I hate our geopolitical enemies, and I want the best for my country, and to the exclusion of my enemies, that's his idol. And in clinging to that idol, he's saying, I have forsaken the hope of mercy. And at this moment, the Lord, through the fish, through the storm, through the descent into Sheol, has kind of peeled Jonah's fingers open. And Jonah's going, oh, my goodness, I've been looking at this when I should have been looking at you, God. Um, And he says, with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay out. In other words, I'll be obedient to what you've called me to. And he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And with that, the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. A but, very ignominious arrival. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Jonah. I mean, do you imagine what he's covered with and what kind of smells are all over him? Stomach acid? Anyway, never mind. Oh, look, it's the man of God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, he's been thoroughly humbled here. But one of the interesting things, Jonah gets it when he says, like his, his aha moment, right? I, when I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to your holy temple, he said, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of mercy. And so Jonah sees himself. I'm an idolater. Oh, my goodness. I see it now. And all of a sudden, he realizes I haven't given God what he deserves. He deserves my love. And if I hope for mercy, he needs to come first. That's, that's the line that Jonah gets for himself, right? Mm-hmm. But he refuses to give to Ninevites. Right. Right? He says, you know, I, I get that I'm idolatrous. I don't love God as he deserves to be loved. The same is true of the Ninevites. They really do worship idols, false gods. And yet Jonah is like, but they don't deserve your mercy. Right. So it's like he'll take it for himself but refuse it to give give it to others. And as you say, Jonah's problem was nationalism. He thought that the you know, he was regarding salvation, the Lord's salvation as something that belonged to his people, his national mm-hmm. people. And that last line, salvation belongs to the Lord, represents a 180 degree departure from that. It's like mm-hmm. he turned around and he recognized salvation belongs to the Lord. God can save whom he whoever he wants to save. Yeah. And we have no standing to say, "No, Lord, not that one. Don't <laughs> save that one." Yeah. yeah. And that's an insidious lie that still to this day still lingers around this idea that God's salvation was only for the nation of Israel. That was never God's mission. You know, even from the beginning when when he's promising the gospel in Genesis 3, when he said he's going to crush the head of the snake, that's not just for Hebrews. That's for humanity. Right. You know, when he when he calls out Abraham, who's going to become the father of faith, right? He says, I am going to bless you so that you can become, through you, well, I will bless the nations. He doesn't say, through you, I'm going to bless this one particular people. Right. He's, he, Abraham is raised up to be a blessing through Abraham, to be a blessing to the nations. Well, guess who that includes? Us, Gentiles, everybody. Gentiles, Ninevites, you know. Right. And so this idea that creeped in when Israel became a kingdom and it was like, you know, clearly God had a – they were the apple of his eye. Sure. But they were always blessed to be a blessing. That never departed from God's heart. But in Israel, they became this, this obsession with we're special and everyone else is garbage. It's it's that's never been the heart of God, mm-hmm. and so <laughs> Jonah is an example where God calls out a descendant of Abraham to be a blessing to the Gentiles, and he's saying, "No, no, no, we're special; they're gross." Right. A transformed life comes from salvation. Salvation mm-hmm. is not the result of a transformed life. Correct. You know, we we have a tendency. In American theology, if ever will, I mean, there's been this kind of thing of like, you know, um, you know, the Lord helps those that help themselves. I'm like, where's that in Scripture? 
You know, it's like <laughs> it's not. It's not right. Exactly. <laughs> um, but it was one of those things that you know that I mean, how many times have you heard that? I've heard that all mm-hmm. through my childhood. It's like the Lord helps those. And the other one I heard, by the way, was cleanliness is next to godliness. I'm like what (laughs) i think that was one that was invented by mothers that needed their children to wash with soap (laughs) rather than just run through the shower and say i'm clean mom um but at any rate you know we have these kind of colloquial theology things and it's always a thing of well yeah i know i need to i need to straighten my life up i need to straighten my act up i need to get right with god well getting right with god doesn't involve straightening up your life it, getting right with God is a, is a is a spiritual transaction that then should produce a, a transformed life. But you don't start with, I'm going to fix everything that's wrong with me, because we can't fix everything that's no. wrong with us. No. Uh, and so, so Jonah's vomited on the beach. He's trying to preserve his dignity. He's brushing off the entrails and the, the, <laughs> the leftover squid that the fish had also eaten and nice. all that sort of stuff. And he... And then it says, then the word this is, this of the, is good hair product. It is good. I would imagine that he didn't need anything to keep his hair looking lustrous and shiny. Uh, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just I, I, I OK, you know, this isn't this isn't in the scriptures. This is this is the Lautenschlager message passion translation where I imagine God started with. Now that I have your attention, Jonah. (laughs) But he gives him the same message. He says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And this time there's a different outcome. Yeah, and this this might not make the final cut, but you remember how in the last episode we talked about how there's the waters and the ruach comes on the surface of the waters, just like in Genesis 1, at the very start of creation. And then you have, you know, the three days – and it says Jonah was vomited out on dry land. Mm-hmm. You know, it's walking you through here on the third day now. You have Jonah out, and it's dry land. Well, dry land is brought forth, right, on the third day. So when we get to Jonah chapter 3, and it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, and he repeats the command to Jonah, the idea is there's a new beginning. You know, it's it's that same thing that you find throughout the scriptures where God is bringing forth a new beginning, a new creation as the idea, and now he's come to Jonah again saying, okay, let's, let's from the top, <laughs> you know, let's, let's start again. <laughs> Arise and go to Nineveh. Yeah. That's why I said, I, I just imagine in my mind, now that I have your attention, Jonah, uh, now the, the imagery of the fish, this was something I alluded to last week, um, and then we didn't get to it because we hadn't gotten to the fish yet. Uh, but there's a, a thing about the Assyrians and the mm-hmm. imagery of fish that you had found in your archaeological research when you were mm-hmm. looking at some of those ancient forms and whatnot. Tell us about that. So, so this is a Sam Caston Smith theory, okay. um, but I'm really confident of this. Um, and the Neo-Assyrian Empire, they had, you know, a polytheistic structure of worship where they worshipped all these different gods. But they had sages that were called Apkalu. You can you can look it up on Google Images and see what I'm talking about. It's spelled A-P-K-A-L-L-U. And Apkalu were originally considered – there were seven sages that when the gods originally created humanity, humanity was created – to serve the gods. They were almost a slave class created in the Assyrian mythology. Mm-hmm. They were a slave class that were created to do the will of the gods so that the gods could rest. I mean, that shows you how different the Hebrew religion is. But anyway, in the, these mythologies, humanity was just to be slaves. And so at the very beginning of creation, you had these seven sages that emerged out of the sea, and they were called Apkalu. And the way that they looked is they were humans that were covered almost in a costume of either a fish or an eagle. And so if you look at ancient Assyrian um, archaeology, you'll see these things all over the place. You can find a lot of images of them online um, from archaeological digs. And so the idea is these figures, these sages at the beginning of creation when humanity first came forth – come to them out of the sea in the image like humans swallowed up by a fish costume to tell them what the will of the gods is for their life. Mm -hmm. And so now, stop for a moment. This is what the Assyrians believe that wise sages or prophets look like, you know, men in costumes of fish that come up out of the sea to tell them how to please the gods. And so now I want you to imagine Jonah 
and whoever else could have possibly witnessed this showing up at Nineveh and saying, have I got a story for you? <laughs> Just, <laughs> you know, And they're going to hear, oh, my goodness, here is somebody who's come out of a fish from the sea who's coming to us to tell us how we are to please God. Mm-hmm. And absolutely – so, I mean, you imagine the Lord has orchestrated this entire story and all of his sovereignty to give Jonah the credibility that's going to save his life when he shows up in Nineveh. And he's going to mock, in a sense, the Assyrian beliefs and show that it's his prophet who is the one who emerges from the sea mm-hmm. to show them what the will of God is for their lives. It's really fascinating to me. Yeah, and it's one of those things that I, I kind of had the question of uh, – when we talked about Jonah preaching the eight-word sermon, which we'll get to in just a second, <laughs> you know, it's a very short sermon that he gives them, a very short message. I said, but, you know, Jonah doesn't spend any time elaborating on, uh, you know, look, here's the deal. I'm a Hebrew. I'm a follower of the Hebrew God, the God that made the heavens and the earth. Let me give you all these apologetics, and mm-hmm. I'm going to convince you by the power of logic and my amazing witness here that you're going to believe in what I'm going to tell you now. But in, And I said, it doesn't say that any of that happened, but he's he delivered this message, and the Ninevites responded. And like you say, when you believe that the sages come out of the fish, out of the sea, and this guy shows up on the beach out of the fish, it does <laughs> sort of establish him as, okay, whatever he says, we gotta, we have to pay attention to. And mm-hmm. they, it says that the, it says Nineveh is about a, a day's journey away from the coast. It says Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. Now, is that – was Nineveh – that's one question I had was – because – you know the archaeology of this stuff better than I do. Nineveh was a huge city. It was like a, it was mm-hmm. like a day's or three days journey across. They believe that Nineveh at this time in history is the biggest city on planet Earth. So it was several days to go across. Like if you wanted the journey from one side of Nineveh to the other, mm-hmm. it would take you several days of walking to get across there. Yeah, and okay. this isn't this isn't the walled city. This okay. is this is the entire city, all the outskirts and farms and people who would have considered themselves a resident of Nineveh. Right. So was it, it a coastal city then? Was Nineveh? No, on no, the no, coast? no, no. It was not. Okay, so he had Nineveh, to travel some distance to get to Nineveh. Correct. It's not a day's journey, I don't think, from the coast of the Mediterranean. So he's going to be in the Mediterranean when this fish spits him up onto <laughs> you know, dry land. And he's got a long tote to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is you know, over in the area of Babylon and – and Iraq, you know, it's it's a good ways, hundreds and hundreds of miles to get to Nineveh. So he's got a he's got a good journey to get there. And when he gets there, we're told that it's an exceedingly great city, a three days journey around it. So if you were to walk around the outskirts of it, it would take you three days, is what the Bible is getting at. And to go into the heart of it is a, a good day's journey. Yeah. And if you think about that, if the average speed of walking, they say, let's just let's just say average speed is three miles an hour, I think the walking speed is, a three days journey, it's talking about journeying from sun up to sundown when they talk about a day's journey. So you're talking about a city that's you know, 100 miles or more around in circumference. It's yeah. a big, very big place. It's possible. And I mean, we don't, some of this is colloquial so sure. the ways that they would have talked about you know we're swagging uh, we're guessing on some correct things. yeah so like there's one thing where you know how it says jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights that's a colloquial term and in in an ancient hebrew anytime that you said that it just meant any part of the day so you know a lot of people will say jesus was buried in the tomb for three days when actually you know it would have been friday evening you know he's he's put in the tomb Saturday right. and then Sunday morning he's out so he's only in there for a one full day and parts of two days right but if you go and you read the Hebrew um, literature the writings of the scribes and and priests of that day that three days three nights means a part of any day it's right. it's like there's certain things that we say in English nothing comes to mind where if you think of them very literally it makes no sense at all. Right. Well, like when I say the other day, it's not an exact measurement of time. What does the other day mean? It could mean you and I talked about this three days ago. It could mean mm-hmm. when we first met each other yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. 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 Back in my day. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's colloquial. So this might very well, when it talks about a three days journey, that might have been, you know, a specific measurement that has been lost to time. We don't know for sure. Okay. Because a hundred mile 
circumference of a city that's would huge. be gargantuan. Really that really seems big. that seems too big. I mean, you know, you start it does honestly, but the and so again, I'm reading between the lines here a little bit, but mm-hmm. I have to imagine Jonah getting vomited on the beach. There's going to be fishermen and people that live on the coast there because that's what people did in those days. Is that you lived on the coast if you could, a big part of commerce. And so they see this guy get vomited out of the fish, and he gets up, and he dusts himself off. And no doubt, people are coming to him going, what? You know, (laughs) what exactly just happened here? And he goes, I got to go to Nineveh. And I'm just imagining that when he arrived in Nineveh, that there was a crowd that had come along with Fish Boy because they said, I got to see how this turns out. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this guy gets puked up on the beach by a fish, gets up, cleans himself off, says, I'm going to Nineveh. I'm thinking... I'm going to go along. I got. I got to see what happens here. So, when he arrives in Nineveh, there's probably going to be a few people around going, "Hey, hey, 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 fish boy here's got a message for you," or perhaps a little more reverently, this one came out of a fish that came out of the sea, and I saw it with my own eyes. Yeah. yeah. Instant credibility. Yeah. Instant credibility. So that takes again when we talk about the how miracles versus the why miracle. Yeah. That really gives some reasons as to why God I mean there's multiple reasons as to why God does this miracle but that adds a lot of credibility and he does this again and again where he'll he'll perform miracles or things where we scratch our heads and we go why would God do that like the length of Samson's hair or the ten plagues of Egypt all of these things are speaking and kind of mocking these pagan belief systems and we wind, we wonder why would God associate strength with Samson's hair? Why would God put Jonah in a fish? Why would he do these ten plagues? And every one of them, God is showing through his mercy, he's showing the residents who believe those pagan myths, no, 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 the real power is with Yahweh, the yeah. God of the Hebrews. Yeah, I, think there, I, I do think there is something to that. The other reason could simply be God hadn't invented submarines yet. So hey, he, there you go. He needed the fish. <laughs> so then, so then, when Jonah gets to Nineveh, he preaches the shortest sermon. I mean, he did not go over time at all. There was nobody looking at their watch, going, "The dolphins are about to start playing, Pastor. You'd better speed up. The coffee's getting cold, Pastor." No, this was yeah. a short sermon. Yeah, this is not a Caston Smith sermon. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's he, not. I mean, he just says, "Yet forty days." And, and that word yet is like still or again or longer is the idea. You've got another 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And the craziest thing happens. The people of Nineveh, from, from the greatest to the least, believed God. Yeah. That is a remarkable happening in and of itself. These bloodthirsty people said, wow, okay, you know, we, we're going to be overthrown. We don't want to be overthrown, so what do we do? <laughs> and 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 the crazy thing about like this is actually helpful for those of us who are in ministry is you have a reluctant prophet who doesn't want to be there who doesn't want to give a message who hasn't built a you know he hasn't built a website he hasn't developed an app he hasn't you know come up with programs or anything else he hasn't polished up a sermon he goes in there with a bad attitude gives eight words and they believe god now Speaking as a communication director, Sam, that doesn't mean websites and apps are bad things. <laughs> no, they're not bad. But okay. what I'm saying is they're not what bring people to faith. No, they're not. It is entirely God who works in spite of his prophet here yeah. to bring these people to have ears to hear. And that's a, that's both a comfort and a, and a good humbling reminder to us in ministry that, you know what, like he could – he could use an eight-word sermon to change a city, and we tend to think that it's all on us. You know, we've got to we've got to be winsome, which is good. We've got to prepare the best sermon, which is good. But we act like it's dependent on us. We have to be good enough. Mm-hmm. And and you see God do something like this, and it's like, all right, God, <laughs> this is. It's like Jonah finished chapter two. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He's gonna. He's in charge of this. You know, Has that ever happened to you? I mean, you've been in ministry a long time. You've preached a lot of sermons and devotionals. Has somebody ever come up to you at a time when you thought, man, I just laid an egg? And, and All the time. All the time? All the time. I, Lord, My wife and I used to joke when I was teaching um, high school and middle school, I would go in on the days that I thought, man, this message is just going to totally knock them over. This is awesome. I love it. And then those classes, nobody would pay attention. The goofballs were messing everything up. And, and it never failed that when I went into class thinking this is the one, 
it was a wah wah. <laughs> but then on the days that I'd go in and be like, man, I feel totally unprepared. This is going to bomb. This is I'm just going to spend the whole class having to manage behavior because this is not engaging at all. We'd have these amazing conversations. And so, like, Laura would joke with me that on the days where I was going to work, like, I'm not excited about this lesson at all. And she's like, oh, it's going to be a great day. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that's really true. Yeah. And and another weird thing is you go in and you preach the same message, almost identical, at 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. And one service, you feel it move powerfully. You get lots of feedback. You know, it – and then in the next service, it's like, you know, a thud, you know, nothing nothing happened. And it's just really bizarre as a preacher. You start getting the sense that it's not you. It is this, whether the spirit moves or not. And I think um, that's uh, I think that's in, important. Like you said, it's, a, it's both an encouragement, but it's also, you know, there's never a time where we can look at and say it's not worth it. It's Never. it's not worth it. Yeah, you know, it's not worth preaching to these guys. It's not worth it's not worth my time talking to my neighbor. It's not worth my time being kind to my family or whatever that that cousin or or you know whatever I can't get along with at Thanksgiving. I just he's going to come in with that you know red flag or blue flag or whatever, <laughs> and I'm going to kick him out of the house. And it's just not worth my time and even speaking to him. It is always worth your yeah. time. Yeah. And and whether God moves or not, I used to, uh, my the dean of students at the seminary I went to used to have a helpful way of putting this. He said, you know, as a as a pastor, what you can control is whether or not you're putting your sails up. You know, you can you can put the sails up. You can't control whether the wind blows. Right. Um, and that was always helpful. You know, when I when I go up preach a sermon or do a podcast or have a conversation or do counseling, like I'm doing my best to put the sails up. But it's entirely up to the Lord whether the wind blows and and moves the vessel, you know. Yeah. But we gotta we gotta keep our sails up yeah. in the hopes that God's gonna send a wind. It is cool to me sometimes when uh, we have some people who listen to the podcast and and this now is going to be I think this is actually going to be episode eighty, which will be you know I mean that's a lot of podcasts that's a lot of that's weeks crazy. of sitting around that's talking. a lot of talking it is a lot of talking <laughs> but you and I are particularly good at talking yeah we are so. <laughs> But it is – it's interesting to me because people listen to – are listening to all different episodes. I get – people will say – I saw a post from somebody on social media. I shared it with you yesterday. We're listening to episode 67, and, I'm, and I have to think for a minute, what is episode – what was episode yeah. 67 about? <laughs> um, but they're, you know, they're reacting to things and, and, and talking about the parts of it that, that were meaningful to them. Uh, and that's just awesome to us. I mean, I don't know. I, I know you like it too. I When oh, I, I see it. something like that, I feel like, all right – I'm just this dude that knows how to talk and knows how to edit and has been reading the Bible for a while and and that God would use me to to ever say anything or be a part of anything that encourages somebody in their faith and their walk mm-hmm. is awesome to me. So I love hearing the feedback from people uh, that that like the podcast. That's is that a is that a shameful uh, like <laughs> people please tell please. us you like our podcast? You know, <laughs> I didn't mean for it to come off that way. We have terrible self-esteem, people. Please, we do. we do actually. We do. Uh, you know, send us food. That's how we know. If we get chocolates in the mail, we know we've done a good job. But actually, no. Please don't do that. Um, all right. So, the, so Jonah preaches this eight-word sermon, um, laying it out there in his winsome way. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God, called for a fast, and put on sackcloth. And then, word reaches the king. So the king is going to join this. He removes his robe, covers himself with sackcloth, sits in ashes, which is representative of death. And it's whenever people would throw ashes or dust on themselves or they would sit in ashes, what they're, what they're saying is, I deserve death. And even beyond that, in the ancient world, you would take your trash and you would burn it. And so you would see these huge ash heaps in ancient cities where they would burn their landfills. And so when you sit in ashes, you're saying, I deserve death. Or I'm garbage. It, it's a it's a humbling of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and the king is doing this. The king of the mightiest empire on the face of the planet. And you would you'd think that Jonah's going, Oh my goodness, this is awesome. They're turning, you know, here's a chance to redeem these people, which he doesn't. And the king issued a proclamation, so it's not just him. He published it all through Nineveh. And it says, by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? 
God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I think it's an interesting thing for him to say there at the end. Who knows? God yeah. may turn and relent. You know, it's like yeah. it wasn't even a guarantee, but let's take a shot on yeah. it. And his sermon, Jonah certainly didn't seem to open that door. He you didn't. know, I mean, so so here you have, and the interesting thing is, you know, in the previous chapter, Jonah is, you know, his big aha moment is he's got idols, you know, and he's got to turn away from his idols. And there's there's something that's kind of poetic about the fact that. When Jonah comes to them, the the image of him coming out of the sea and out of the fish is this Apkalu. Jonah's taking on the appearance of one of their idols, in a sense, calling them away from their idols. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the king is like, you know, let's get rid of our evil. Let's let's humble ourselves. Let's go before the Lord and plead for His mercy. And it says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. And so here you see, you know, the <laughs> God's mercy came upon the Ninevites. So you get this picture that there's, you know, revival that is set out these people who are the world's most notoriously wicked and brutal people are begging God for mercy and God relents. And mm. it's it's really pretty pretty amazing. We've talked about this before. I don't remember whether we did it while we were actually recording or not, but one of the questions I've always had about this is, given the fact that the Assyrians did what they did later on, I mean, they did within... 50 years. 50 years, right. They were back to their Assyrian ways and... Chopping up Jonah's ancestors or descendants. And salting the earth, in effect, by interbreeding with the people of that time to create the... to basically try to exterminate the race of Mm -hmm. these people from the earth. Um, by sort of absorbing it into that. So they've done all of these things afterwards. So given that that was still their their inclination and their sort of the natural course that they would return to, do you believe that this was a genuine repentance? You know, the, the way that I see it, and I mentioned this, you know, when Jesus tells the parable of the sower and there's, you know, four different types of seed that are cast out, uh-huh. you know, there's some seed that goes deep into the soil and it bears fruit, you know, it comes up. But these other, you know, there's, some are plucked by birds and some are choked out by thorns and some don't go deep enough because it's rocky soil and so they never bear fruit. You know, that's what we're looking at here. You know, this is the seed goes down, but it can't go down because it's rocky soil. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have anybody to to till it for them. They don't have Jonah's not going to do Bible study with them. He's not going to talk to them about what it looks like to follow after God. And they have they have no other way. I mean, they they know that this God does not like their behavior, so they repent. They stop their wickedness. They humble themselves. They're ready to be fed. But they'll never be fed, and so within a couple of generations, they're right back to what they know. They go back to to their habits, and that's not good for the world. And it's one of the messages to us, by the way. Um, You know, the gospel comes and it says, look, if you think something is infectious in in a bad way, in your world, you think something's this cancer, you've got enemies out there, the gospel comes and says, the best thing you can do is not to tear them down. It's not to defeat them. It's not to, you know, drive them down into the dust. It's to win them to the truth, to win them in friendship, to transform them. Because if you go the other route, you just have this never-ending cycle of violence and hatred that can't be quenched. But when you win somebody as a friend and you bring them to the truth – then your world is a better place and hatred is driven away. You know, dark, Martin Luther King Jr. once said, you know, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only love can do that. Or I'm sorry, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And I think that's, that's spot on. And Jonah and this story, as we'll see, is going to try to drive out darkness with darkness. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So we'll be getting into to chapter four next week and then what happens next with Jonah and his sort of I'm angry God and I can't get over it. Uh, <laughs> that's that's ahead. But before we get away from this story today, I feel like though there's applications that could be made or things we could take away from, you know, this this was a great, powerful city that repented. This was, you know, we have the imagery of the fish and all of that. What are you know, what are the takeaways that we could have from this? Yeah, I, th- I think some of the the contemporary relevance to a story like this 
is, you know, if you go through Bible, you look at traditional revivals. Revivals typically come to those that are suffering. You know, they're running out of options. They're, you know, they're at the bottom of the totem pole. They, they're poor. They're oppressed. They have nowhere to go but up to look to God. And Nineveh stands as one of the exceptions that I can find in Scripture. It might be the only one that I can think of where revival comes to a super powerful, super rich, super wicked, ascending uh, empire, and God comes with one man, this kind of unwilling prophet, and knocks them on their head. Hmm. Um, and so when I think about revival, what it would look like in America, I mean, we'd have a long way to go to be suffering like some of the societies where revival breaks out in intense persecution. Right. But it's a comfort to me to know that revival broke out, or at least the the beginnings of a revival broke out in Nineveh, because I think that's a lot closer to who we are, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think we're a lot closer to the Ninevites and the wickedness and the self righteous you know, this this arrogance and how we abuse one another and, and we're just we're kind of turning into a nation of beasts where we mistreat one another. And I think a a strong strongly worded prophetic voice that comes and says, Hey, forty days and you're done. Like, I've, I've had it with you people. Mm-hmm. I think that's more our situation than, oh, my goodness, we're so oppressed. We need you, God, to show up and deliver us. Um, you know, I, I just say so there's hope and that God looks at a place like Nineveh and can bring revival and bring it on the, on the turn of a dime. You know, one of my, one of my favorite, because we don't think, when we look at America, we just, we don't, we can't imagine what revival would look like coming here like we can't imagine the whole city turning on a dime fort lauderdale we just we can't imagine all of fort lauderdale with all of its sin and mess and everything else turning and loving jesus like that it just doesn't make sense we can't imagine it one of my favorite things i've ever read i've mentioned this before is in the autobiography of benjamin franklin who never becomes a christian even though he was around even though Christians he was around yeah. Christians and appreciated Christianity, and right. he writes in his autobiography that he never became a Christian. But he talks about how one of the greatest evangelists during the um, the Great Awakening, a guy by the name of George Whitfield who'd come over from, from England, and this guy just started going around to different cities and preaching. And at this point, the colonies of America had descended into real wickedness before the Great Awakening. Like, I mean, it was just bad. And so Franklin writes about how Whitfield came into his town and none of the pastors would let him preach in their pulpits because he was he was just too radical. You know, he was too into this gospel thing. He believed too much in the Holy Spirit. And so this guy went out into fields and thousands of people would went went and hear him. By the time he gets done with his ministry, millions of Americans had heard his sermons traveling all over the place. But Franklin writes that he was amazed because, like, he would refer to the crowds as, like, half-devils and talk to them about how they were so wicked and call them out on all their wickedness, which is sounds kind of like a Jonah ministry, <laughs> except Whitfield added some more and gave them some hope. But listen to what Franklin says, and imagine this modern day, okay? Like, God can do this. He says, it was wonderful to see the change soon made in the manners of our inhabitants. Listen to this. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that one could not walk through the town in any evening without hearing psalms being sung in the different families of every street. Now, this isn't this isn't out of the Bible. This is Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, Who Never Became a Christian, talking about this crazy thing where people were listening to this guy, which he says is abused them by telling them how rotten they were and then giving them the hope of the gospel. And like overnight, he says, revival hits, the great awakening sparks, everything changed. That could happen here. Yeah. You know, the the Lord could absolutely come and rescue us from our wickedness. And I don't think anybody in our country <laughs> on either side would say that we are not a wicked people. Right. You know, we're just descending into the filth. Yeah. But the Lord, like he did with Nineveh, could move with overnight, change the hearts of the inhabitants. And, man, that needs to be our prayer. Yeah. 
And then the uh, we were talking about the the imagery of the fish. You talked about the the sages and so forth. But there's a you know maybe I'm being a little oversimplistic here, but don't people stick that little bumper sticker of a fish on the back of their car these days? What's the there's a carry forward with the fish imagery too. Yeah, totally. So so when Jesus talks about his death and resurrection, he says it's the sign of Jonah. Right. And so in the early church, when when you came across a Christian stranger, especially during times of persecution when you wanted to know where each other stood, you know, the the, the tradition says that one Christian would come and put an ark in the dirt, and if the other Christian finished the ark to make the image of a fish, then they were in good company as fellow Christians. And so the fish, which is we call it the the Ichthus, because it's the Greek word for that, um, that became emblematic of Christianity in the early church. Just like, you know, if somebody's wearing a cross, you assume that they're sympathetic to the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. You know, that fish means the same exact thing when you see it on a car, but it's it's pointing you to the death and resurrection of Christ. It's, it's saying we're a people who hope in the sign of Jonah. Um, but there's also something else to that. You know, we talk about what what the Christians called to. That fish for us should not just be um, a reminder of Jesus' death and resurrection, which, of course, is foremost. But with that fish is a reminder of Jonah, you know, and the need for those of us who are shown such mercy by a God who would give his life on a cross and and die for us and be raised from the grave and raise us with him, like that radical mercy that has been shown to us, we need to then show to others. And so in that fish, like remember, it's part of the message of the book of Jonah is that we serve a God of resurrection, but it's also a message that we as the people of God don't just exist to be shown mercy. We exist to come out of that fish and go to the enemies of God to show them mercy. Mm. I think that's a good word to end on (laughs) because that's something that we all need to do. If you'd like to correspond with us, there's an email address where you can do that. It is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com, where you can also find all of the back episodes of Out of Water at riovistachurch.com slash out of water. You can also get them through our Rio Vista Church smartphone app. If you go to your app store and search for Rio Vista Church, you can also find it on Google Play. You can find it on uh, Apple Podcasts. You can find it on Spotify. Sam and I will be back next week with the conclusion, the fourth chapter of the book of Jonah. We look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.